Section 10 of The Bachelor's Club by Israel Sangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 The Fall of Israfel. Part 2 He smiled a smile of infinite humor and poked the fire. I opened a bottle of champagne that lay in a cooler and tossed off a glass. I was in a state of nervous excitement, and while Mondego was talking, I was all ears, and so could not drink. He went on. It was in these extremities that I stumbled upon my old friend Dabchick, a companion of my schoolboy bohemianism. I met him in York Road, where I had gone to pick up some wrinkles from the artistes who hung around the agent's doors, and to chaffer comic songs, for which I sometimes got a guinea. Words and music. Some of the most popular comic songs of the day are from my pen, and I have often been disturbed in the night by hearing my early pot-boilers bellowed from the throats of the tipsy revelers. Dabchick was exquisitely dressed and richly jeweled and told me he was something in a bank. He did not tell me what he was in the bank, though judging from the amount of gold on his person he might have been a drawer in it. But he did not cut me even when he found I had no connection whatever with banks. Ah, uh, you will find many virtues in Portland. He told me he belonged to a number of swell clubs, and moved in the highest circles of the four-mile radius. This was rather imaginative. Still it was through his influence that I obtained an appearance at a ladies' night of the Rovers' Club. The concert duly took place. The pretty little hall in the club was crowded with fair women and gallant men. Joaquin brought his fiddle, and Antoinette Sterling her organ and Israfel Mondego was the only unknown name on the dainty printed program. The name had been chosen after anxious consultations with Dabchick. Both of us felt that Harry Slapup was not a name to climb to fame on, especially as I had now determined to win it with the higher branches of the comic song. In any case, it would never do for the Rovers Club. I must have a high-class name, which might be an impulse to me and a safeguard against low foolery, which for the rest would never go down at the rovers except in a comedian who had shaken hands with the Prince of Wales. The name must also be striking and eccentric, for in spite of Shakespeare there is great virtue in a name. As Solomon says, a good name is better than riches, especially to a professional. The Israfel was my discovery. I chanced on it in Poe's poems. We both agreed it was bizarre enough to make a reputation. Mondego was invented by Dabchick, who also lent me a dress suit, which made me regret my father. It squeezed me so tight. The item on the program ran thus. It is burnt in my brain in letters of fire. Ballad, A Buried Hope, Israfel Mondego. The words of this song you know, you have seen it on every drawing-room table, and heard it played from every barrow-organ. Yes, I said, I could repeat it in my sleep. The words forced themselves half involuntarily from my lips. A buried hope. The winter winds are chilling, the buried blossoms blow. Though doubt sweet love is killing, the fates ordain it so. We parted when the redbreasts sang loud mid roses lush, Yet should our frozen dead breasts refuse to thaw or gush? Our sadness is but sorrow, our joy is but delight, and what will be tomorrow can never be tonight. Our truest selves with screening are hid from friends and foes, and what on earth we're meaning, high heaven only knows.
Vastly pretty words, indeed, I added slyly. It would be perfect if they had anything to do with the title. Ah, that was my little secret, said Israfel. You, of course, grasp that this was intended as a skit on the ordinary drawing-room ballad. The first element of such a ballad is the complete divorce between the title and the verses. But if the title had no meaning for the audience, there was no harm in its having meaning for me. The buried hope was my hidden trust that the reputation of a society clown lay enshrined in that song. Alas, it was a hope I soon had to bury in a graver sense. He paused, overcome with emotion. And yet, looking back on it after all these years, I can honestly say that it deserved a better fate. It was an excellent burlesque of the namby-pamby songs of the day, and the last quatrain with its double meaning is extremely clever. The music I wrote myself. I wrote it in the minor, and I surcharged it with subtle sarcasm. It was full of inarticulate longing and sadness and weariness, yet it whispered of some ineffable consolation in the far-away whatness of the unintelligible. I played my own accompaniment, which was limited to a few melancholy chords. As I came from behind the screen that hid the artiste's room from the audience, my breath came thick and fast. Stage fright held me in its throes as though I were a beginner. So much to me and my poor mother depended on that night. My poor mother, who had not even an evening dress to be present in. I gave a last touch to my white tie and my black hair and stepped into the full blaze of two hundred pairs of polite eyes. There was a little perfunctory clapping, succeeded by a sudden rustling of ladies' dresses. A dazzling sea of white shirts and bosoms swam before me. I sank down on the music stool with gratitude that I had to sit. I had intended to preface my song with the remark, Ladies and gentlemen, I beg to introduce to your notice a model specimen of the English drawing-room ballad. I intended to accompany this with a look of dry humor, a sort of refined wink, but my fingers nervously started the prelude before I sat down, and I felt my courage oozing out of their ends. I felt that I could not make that little speech now, much less wink. Besides, would it not be an insult to the intelligence of the audience? There was no going back. The weird, pathetic prelude was at an end, and I dashed right away into the song. The winter winds are chilling. It happened to be a seething night of early summer, but the inaccuracy of a vocal assertion is no bar to its impressiveness. I put a good deal of shiver and heartbreak into that line, to contrast it with the hopefulness of the next. It was a most artistic skit, but when I reached the end of the first verse there was a dead silence, not a single snigger. My heart sank within me. My eyes had been turned up in a passionate agony. I now rolled them cautiously towards the audience in search of a smile. No, every face was blank and stony. There were tears of disappointment in my voice as I sang the second stanza, with its consoling hints of a faraway whatness. The silence throughout was painful. My voice was choking with disappointment as I sang of human effort and aspiration misinterpreted, misunderstood. And what on earth were meaning high heaven only knows. As the last notes trembled in the silence, I rose and dashed from the platform. To my amazement, a thunderous roar pursued me. The hall seemed to rock with applause. 
I could hardly believe my ears. Could I have made a hit after all? And was seriousness merely the fashionable method of expressing amusement? Somebody pushed me back onto the platform. I bowed as if in a dream and turned back dazed, but the enthusiasm continued. Bravo! Bravissima! Bis! Encore! resounded in a chorus from all sides, sweet female voices taking up the trouble. My heart was too full to speak, so I sang. I sang the last verse again, making it more maudlin than ever by my tears of joy. Then, still pursued by that tempest enthusiasm, I tottered out of the artiste's room into a passage in search of air. In an instant Dabchick was by my side, wringing my hand in violent congratulation. As he pumped away, the tears continued to fall from my eyes. "'I say, dear boy, you've knocked him,' he said. "'You'll have half a dozen offers tomorrow, but I thought you were going to do something comic.' I stared at him. "'Don't be funny, old man,' I said. "'I'm awfully indebted to you, so don't spoil it, but I was afraid it was going to be a frost. They don't laugh up west, do they?' "'Oh, don't they? You try them.' "'I have tried them. "'You don't mean to say you didn't know that was a refined comic song?' "'A comic song?' he repeated, staring at me as if suspecting I was chaffing him. "'A comic song? Are you serious? I was more serious in my life.' "'That's what they all thought you were just now. "'My Jove is as rich!' "'And he started laughing convulsively till his cheeks were as wet as mine. "'I stood there.' "'waiting in much annoyance till his foolish mirth should have spent itself. <laughs> "'Oh, but dear boy,' he said at last, "'your reputation's made as a sweet, a sad tenor. "'I never knew such a furor. "'Everybody was sniveling into his or her handkerchief. "'The ladies were all in love with you, "'and vowing that your singing is just too sweet and lovely for anything, "'and too awfully exquisite. "'And you're charming and handsome and a darling.' "'and they were raving about your eyebrows and your moustache. "'They were all asking who you were, "'and I heard Lady Desborough inquiring of your address from the secretary "'and saying you must sing at her next at home. "'Your fortune is made, old man. "'You have stumbled into success. Stick to it. "'Oh, you dare not sing comic songs now. It would spoil everything.' "'My heart sank. Dare not sing comic songs?' "'I, I faltered.' "'No,' he answered emphatically. "'Think of your poor old mother. "'You have found out where your real forte lies. "'Stick to it. "'It's a deuce job to make a hit in London, I can tell you. "'It's a terrible uphill battle "'and all the throng of geniuses and charlatans. "'Don't you risk anything else. "'You only spoil your market. "'The public won't stand versatility. "'Sentimentality is your line. "'Sentimental you must remain till the end of the chapter.' "'Nobody knows you are Harry Slapup. "'Harry Slapup, the comic singer, is dead, "'and is Raphael Mondego, the drawing-room onion and passion flower, "'reigns in his stead. "'I did not give in without a struggle, "'but in the end I saw that Dabchick was wise. "'My mother's misery was a daily reproachful argument. "'I buried the hope of winning the laurels of comic singing, "'and I went forth into the battle of life "'cloaked in a mantle of hypocrisy.' What my career has been, I need not recapitulate. I have deluged a Puritan people with the ocean of false sentiment. It is largely through me that they have preferred moonshine to healthy sunlight. 
young persons who could not read martin tupper without a blush rising to their cheeks gloried in my voluptuous effusions my waltzes were a caress and my verses a kiss detestable old dowagers who had sold their daughters to wealthy husbands and who in real life were as matter-of-fact as pillar-boxes crowded to my concerts languishing in the ardours of my poetry and revelling in the aesthetic raptures of my music and your moustache he smiled good-humouredly i won't deny it he said but how did you manage to write the music didn't i tell you i had a lot of comic songs in stock from my old touring days i took these tunes transposed them into the minor and slowed them down and the orchestration oh there are so many starving musicians in london who have taken degrees and all that they will write you an accompaniment for a mere song no pun intended the words needed even less alteration later on in the full tide of my success i was pressed to accept an appointment at the musical college and in hopes of learning something from my pupils i took it i picked up a good many hints with their singing studied the harmony textbooks parapassu with them and completed my education by allowing them to orchestrate my compositions well you've had the devil's own luck in truth the devils he repeated gloomily when the excitement of the first struggle was over none could feel that more acutely than i paul up to my london debut my conscience was pure i joyed in my work and the thorns on the road of honest success only gave me the rapture of the fight now i felt my whole life was a sham and a disgrace oh no i said you earned your money honestly i did not he said my life was a lie i who was brimming over with humour had to wear the cramping folds of romanticism i wanted to sing forty winks my existence has been one long wink everything was sacrificed to my reputation but suppose somebody had identified you as harry slapup unfortunately that was impossible how should those who knew the grub recognize the caterpillar then your secret was safe alas yes my mother knew of my comic aspirations but the world at large took me quite seriously what about dabchick he was not at large the only man in the world who knew my unhappy secret was confined in portland for bank defalcations imagine then how choked and stifled my true self has been i do not wonder you dropped into the crown occasionally i said thank you thank you paul he said the tears coming into his eyes but for that i should have gone mad it was the only vent there i threw off the painful mask and reveled in my real self they thought i had an engagement at some london music hall and were very proud of me often i have gone thither straight from a marchioness's reception and found relief and recreation but there was consolation in this unreal life the feminine devotion you have attracted paul he said brutally surely you're not going to throw that up at me too why do you think i joined the bachelors club last year if it was not that i was driven into misogyny by the same feminine devotion by this undisguised admiration of silly young girls and sillier old women by the shoals of scented notes the wagon-loads of presents the marriage proposals and the dinner and elopement invitations received by the gross forgive me 
he said gently. I thought you liked it. Liked it? Why, don't you know that I was so fond of singing at your concerts, only because it was one of the few occasions I could be sure of an audience of men? Can you not feel how wretched it was for me to stand up under the ogling gaze of five hundred women, buried at wide intervals by a solitary man or small boy? Oh, the horror of it for a modest man! He buried his face in his hands. Oh, but you had the satisfaction of supporting your aged mother in luxury. It was my sole consolation. And that brings me to the crux of the matter. I had gone on appeasing my conscience with this sop for years, when suddenly, six months ago, the excuse was taken from me. My poor old mother! His voice broke, and he wiped away a tear. Died? No, married. I kept her in such luxury that a young gentleman of moderate means mistook her for a rich widow and eloped with her. I have forgiven her. I hope he has. Anyway, she is provided for. The pangs of conscience now become intolerable. Better, I thought, an honest crust than a dishonest cream tart. What was to be done? To become a comic singer was out of the question. I had gone too far for that. I could not undo the past. The only course left to me was to press on to the higher branches of serious music. I could make the transition gradually and imperceptibly. Leaving behind my sentimentality as the nautilus moves from its early chambers. I could rise on the stepping stones of my dead self to higher things. By this time, what with teaching, what with composing and criticizing, I had picked up a very fair knowledge of music. I could now harmonize my own airs. I took private lessons from a famous singing master and left no stone unturned to cultivate art earnestly and with dignity. One day I introduced some classical items from the great masters into my afternoon programs, and I wrote a little cantana. The change had been well advertised, but to my disgust the audience remained unchanged, an oasis of man and a desert of woman. Everywhere frocks, 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 fans, lorgnettes, hand-glasses, scented handkerchiefs. <sighs> Made me sick. My classical items were coldly received. My journalistic friends were eulogistic enough in the papers they were openly connected with, but how they took it out of me and those for which they wrote in secret. I, with my airs and graces, my lyrics and my female acolytes, had long been the butt of the comic papers, but my efforts to amend only brought down severer satire on my defenseless head. And how these epigrams stung. A chief sting lay in the fact that I could have written them myself. I knew, too, how they sneered at me in the clubs behind my back and how men said I made them ill and expressed an amiable desire to kick me. Paul, if I have seen to wax fat by charlatanism, heaven has not let me go unpunished. If I had earned a fortune, I had earned also the contempt of every honest heart, including my own. Don't talk so, I cried. I, at least, do not despise you. You do, do you? You must. This must end. I cannot drag on this life of insincerity. I have read Isbon, and I know honesty is the only policy. 
there is only one way to free my life from these clogs and shackles these sneers and sarcasms there is only one path to the higher life of art and that is marriage another i closed my eyes a faintness overcame me israfel's voice sounded far away the thought only came to me last saturday a casual newspaper sarcasm has illuminated my life this week's hornet says mr mondego is the most single-minded devotee of art in the country and to the single-mindedness he owes all his success the lesson should be encouraging to musical aspirants what a flood of light this threw on my past how blind i had been that was it that was a stumbling block in my path of my progress dared not marry that's what the world was thinking i had no artistic dignity i had not even conceit enough to rely on the attractions of my music my whole popularity depended on my remaining single so as to keep alive the hopes of all my female admirers well they should see these thoughts have been agitating me for days my reception at tonight's concert clinched my resolution even my fellow bachelors refused to take me seriously why should i trouble about my allegiance to their principles or let this stand in the way of higher life and you have resolved finally i breathed finally marriage will strike the keynote of my future of my independence of my artistic seriousness it will show i'm not a mere caterer for amorous admirers that i supply music not flirtation marriage will be the transition to the truer life it alone can resolve the discord of my existence or prepare it i murmured and don't you remember the definition of marriage as the common cord of two flats japes cannot move me now he replied i must lay this libelous invitation on my artistic life marriage is the only remedy after the honeymoon i shall sing no more love songs that is extremely probable i muttered i shall write and sing only classical music music to live not music to live by and what if you fail then at least i fail in a good cause i do not think i shall fail once i have cut myself adrift from the network of petticoats i will emigrate to the antipods under a new name and try to live a new and honest life as a comic singer in a new land as a clown i can always get a living and a performance of manhood may yet crown the expectation of infancy and whom will you marry i have thought of that too i shall marry the woman who of all the women in the world has the least soul for music and the worst ear why so that if i fail in my artistic aspirations or if it is true that i am only accepted because i am a bachelor she may not regret it besides one does not care to rehearse one's songs before a trained ear it might be so painful to it then you might both want to occupy the piano at the same time and the ensuing duet may not be harmonious the woman who cannot tell god save the queen from schubert's serenade except by seeing the people putting on their wraps and overcoats is a musician's fittest mate if i have to turn to comic singing she will not think it a fall your superior person is so unsuperior to prejudices and cannot see that in the kingdom of art are many mansions each as perfect in its way as the rest and you have such a person in your eye i have 
I'm sorry. Oh, perhaps some day there will be a beam in your own eye. Never. But who is this moat in yours? One of my pupils. She is not beautiful, but she is absolutely a clod in music. Unfortunately for herself, her people are rich and have as little ear as herself. So they think she is going to be a great singer, and don't grudge the expense. She has been with me for fifteen terms, and if she knows a bee from a bull's foot or an F-sharp, it is the extent of her musical acquirements. She cannot sing a phrase of three notes without flattening or sharpening. Other girls equally devoid of ear might develop one later, but hers is tried and untrue. But suppose she refuses you? Impossible. If she did not admire me, she would not have had the worst ear for music in the world. You are hard on yourself. Well, good night. I know the worst. Thanks for your confidence. Poor McGillicuddy. I have a hard task before me. I have confidence in your tact. And you will be secret? As the cremation urn. Well, good night. Another glass of champagne. Thank you. Here's prosperity to the society clown. Good night. Good night. The bachelors had hardly recovered from the customary period of mourning when they learned this Raphael had sailed for the antipodes. Alone, a week after, the following paragraph appeared in the Carrion Crow. Mr. Israfel Mondego, the popular tenor, whose marriage a fortnight ago excited so much heartburning and who has probably dealt a severe blow to his reputation by his invidious choice, has left England on an Irish honeymoon by himself. It is whispered that the lady who has led him to the altar was so romantically in love with him that she attended his lessons for fifteen terms, always marking time, not in a musical sense, rather than progress, to the point at which she would have had no excuse for retaining the services of her fascinating music master. Mrs. Israfel Mondego's first musical matinee at St. James Hall next Thursday week should attract a large audience, for in addition to the natural interest centering in her, it is understood that she is a most accomplished pianist and vocalist. It is rumored that Mr. Mondango intends trying the experiment of a series of vocal recitals of an unaccustomed kind in Sydney and Melbourne, and that he will, as usual, accompany himself, his wife having apparently refused to do so. I do not understand how this last bit got into print, it is true I mentioned it in confidence when I was writing to my friend, the editor, but I had no idea he would dare to print it, and why he should insult me by sending me a check for a guinea I do not understand. Still, one has to pocket so many insults in this world. End of section 10